cliffcentral.com. All right, so it's time now for Collectomania. This is our favorite part of a Monday where we get to to explore people's collections and we get to see what people collect, what their interests and their obsessions are. And it's brought to you by the South African Gold Coin Exchange and the Scoin Shop. You can find out more and you can check them out at scoinshop.com. That's coin with an S at the front of it, shop.com, scoinshop.com. And remember, if you're a collector of anything interesting or unusual and you'd like to tell us about it, then get in touch with us, contact at cliffcentral.com. That's contact at cliffcentral.com. And we could end up featuring you and your collection on Collectomania. This morning, we've got Alex Harris with us, and he collects Boer War bullets. This is amazing. So, Alex, first of all, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, morning. Thank you. I'm, I'm great today. How are you guys? Yeah, excellent. It's good to see you, and thank you for joining us. This is a very specific interest. I mean, there are people who collect ammunition. There are people who collect guns, people who collect historical artifacts, but you've combined all of that into a very precise interest in a very particular kind of collection. Boer War bullets. So I can imagine you like roaming around at Isandlwana or Rorksdrift or somewhere in the free state where one of these big battles between the Boers and the, and the, and the, and the English took place and like digging around for old shells. Is this what you do? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I have an unusual career. Part of uh, what we do is uh, we host some mountain bike races in really remote places. So over the years, I've had the privilege of being able to just spend an enormous amount of time in these areas, uh, developing relationships with farmers. And that's part of the big challenge is, is just research, understanding where some of the lesser known battles took place and then being able to figure out exactly where that is. So, you know, those kind of factors career wise have sort of pointed me towards this, uh, you know, this zeroing in on, uh, but not the Zulu War, so just yeah, the, the Boer War specifically. Right. This is fascinating. I mean, you do get to maybe be the first person to find exactly where a battle took place. That that must get exciting. Do you find yourself going onto Google Earth and like zooming in on a certain little hill and trying to figure out where the people were arranged in their camps or where they actually took each other on in battle? And then you go there and you actually you, you try to look for evidence. I mean, that's quite that's quite fun. Yeah, I mean, you've pretty much summarized exactly the modus operandi. You know, nowadays, I spend a lot of time with the government, one in 50,000 topographic maps, because that allows us to plot routes wow. and to figure out where to access farms. And so, you know, the, the kind of journey starts, if I'm trying to zero in on a really obscure battlefield, uh, there might be some maps printed. Uh, you know, there was there was a fair bit of historical coverage, uh, certainly from the, the British side in terms of uh, archives. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Amory's collection of books on, on the on the official record has many, many maps of battles. So you start off with this really obscure map and then you get the government one in 50,000 maps and you try and sort of figure out how those two coincide today. Then you've got to go there, you've got to figure out who owns the land, meet the farmer. But at some point, you've got to, you know, you've got to get out and you've got to obviously walk the hills and uh, see, see what you find because what you find uh, speaks far more than what the book wrote about the battle. And, and that's, for me, the real great interest is, is what are the, you know, what are the, the sort of artifacts on the battlefield? Mm. How do they describe the events of the battle? And how does that relate to how the, the officers who recorded the battle, uh, you know, uh, 
go inside. That's fascinating. I mean, some are accurate, some aren't. So, so I mean, I, I want to know a little bit more about your business and these these mountain bike bike trail uh, trails that you guys do. But yeah, before that, where do you get these maps that you're talking about? These one in fifty thousand. That's an an enormous amount of detail. Is that do you have to ask the government? Do they have a website? Is there a thing that you can do there? You can, so you are able to buy the entire collection on disc, or you can go down to a map studio or maps for Africa, mm-hmm. and they genuinely have most of the one in 50,000s. You know, they, they're typically available to the public. Uh, they may, they're mostly used by, you know, engineers, surveyors, okay. uh, the civil contractors. You know, when they're building a wind, a wind farm in a particular part of the, the country, that's the type of maps they would go to to try and figure out some of the earths and go and access, uh, you know, farmers. But they're publicly available. Hmm. They, they're not that easy to find. But, from Jan- you know, for example, in Johannesburg, there's a map shop about a kilometer from Hyde Park Shopping Center. And they've, you know, they've got pretty much all the one in 50s. And as they run out, they just, you know, they, they, they top up. It's amazing. I didn't even know this existed. This is this is brand new information to me. Uh, now, sure. now you go to these farms. Have you ever met a farmer who was like, "Get off my land! You're, I'm not interested in going dig around somewhere else." Not happy. Yeah, to have so you it's there. interesting. I mean, I, I've probably been to about a hundred battlefields, you know, over wow. the years, and in all that time, I can think of two, maybe three farmers who've said. Uh, no, they don't want you to you, give you access, or they don't want they don't want to allow you to use a metal detector and walk around. You know, uh-huh. but by and large, ninety eight percent of farmers uh, have have actually been quite welcoming, and some of them are interested, some of them really aren't. You know, some of them are sort of third generation farmers on the land, so they they have some idea of the history that unfolded so it's really interesting you know to get uh, farmers but by and large the vast majority are, are quite welcoming wow. and you know sometimes the the only way to find i mean we've got a you know our main mountain bike race is called the munger it goes from bloemfontein through mm-hmm. the karoo to wellington it's a thousand kilometers wow we cross about 70 odd farms now some of those are properly remote and in the early days, you know, the best way to go there is to literally drive onto the land to just go up to a house that's no longer there, find a, you know, a farm worker, figure out who owns the land. So it's a long process to, to piece together. But as you begin to develop a relationship with a one farmer and you start to find, uh, you know, some kind of uh, remains of a battle, you then, after a while, ask him to do an intro to his neighbor, and then you phone the neighbor, and you build up a relationship with him. And then after a couple of years, you ask for his neighbor. So, you know, wow. over a 10-year period, I'll, I'll get to know maybe three or four neighbors and then cover the expanse of a particular area. It's fascinating, and you must meet such interesting people. Yeah. I mean, you know, you also – you come across guys who've got, uh, you know, s- some of the original guns that their grandfather or great-grandfather used that have been passed down, and they've all got stories. They all tell you that, you know, when those guys were attacked, they buried all their guns in that hill, and those guys uh, hid a cache of gold coins. I mean, wow. to be honest, most of the stories are just stories because I've been chasing a lot of rabbits down some holes yeah, and I'm not sure. finding stuff. <laughs> But it is interesting to hear, and, and some of them have personal stories that have been passed down around how their family experienced, the, you know, the, the war, which is, uh, you know, which is sometimes quite poignant. And you realize when this current generation of, of farmers die, those stories are, are going to be gone. So whenever I get a chance, I encourage these guys, listen, write this down, you know, yes. because 
you know, it's history and it's, and, it's and important. The further away in terms of generations we get from these things, the less information is usually conveyed through. And I'm wondering if you've been to over 100 battlefields, you might have even been the first person to see that battlefield or to do any digging around there for a hundred years. Yeah, look, some of the more obscure ones, you know, like our route uh, around the Northern Cape passes through an area where De Vett, who was a famous Boer general, was chased by a whole lot of uh, British soldiers for a couple of weeks. It's really remote. And there, you know, one particular battle, I mean, I, I know for a fact I'm the, the only guy. I mean, the far, I've got a good relationship with the two or three farmers around there. And occasionally you pick up what we call surface finds. So a cartridge case that's lying on the surface, it's been lying there for 120 years and, and it hasn't been undisturbed, you know. And I'm often there with my kids and I say to them, look, if we ever see that, don't pick it up. Let's take a photo of it and then pick it up because it has, it's, it's laying there for 120 years undisturbed. Jeez. And then you're in, you're intervening, and you're kind of breaking that uh, you know that sort of intuitive wow. timeline. So it's a it's a special place out in the middle of the Karoo, in the middle of nowhere. Eh? Mm. So I mean, when you find these things, do you offer to hand them over to the the owner of the land? Is it essentially their property, or are they happy with you taking them to add to your collection? Yeah, so 99% of the farmers that, uh, you know, I've dealt with over the years are, are quite happy for you to keep the stuff. Uh, there's one or two farmers where I've been to regular battlefields uh, or regular times to battlefields. And, you know, they, they're interested to, to see what you find. They found a few things over the years. You know, they've got a sort of a mild interest. But I've never had a farmer say to me, look, whatever you find, you need to you need to hand over, you know. And I think it's partly because the, the life of farming is complicated. You know, most of these guys, you know, don't have the, the sort of uh, luxury of, of time to fiddle around with bullets and bombs, you know, mm -hmm. bombs. They want to they yeah. get on. So, I mean, that's also, you know, it's a, it's a great privilege to be able to develop relationships with these guys and, uh, you know, over the years piece together what happened. And, you know, there's a few so. Just prior, you'll see some of the images I shot a couple of days uh, before the famous Battle of Potterback, you know, when Kimberley was relieved. There are a series of battles that happened on the Modder River that are, you know, they're not particularly well known, but they are uh, strategically uh, quite important in how Kimberley was relieved and how Potterback would eventually develop. And of course, Cronier lost 4,000 Boers. And, you know, there are many arguments that that changed the course of the war. Now, those couple of farmers are, are, are quite interested. And, and, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at some of the old maps of them and trying to piece together where is their farm in this particular map? You know, mm -hmm. where was the old drifts? Um, so it's a, you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting journey when you when you get the vine from the local guy and he's particular keen because he'll have knowledge about his farm yeah. that uh, that I won't have or the map won't tell me. You know that the, the names have changed, the drifts across the rivers no longer exist. So you know that kind of stuff is uh, is fascinating. So so let's look at some of these pictures quickly. What do we got going on here? These three cartridge cases that we could see here that are exploded. Yeah. So that's so that's the what I've just been talking about. So Kimberley was relieved on the the fifteenth of February, uh, uh, nineteen hundred, and those two days uh, before that, these battles were fought. So so what happened there was, of course, if we if we if we backtrack. A couple of months to the famous battle, Marchesfontein. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the British column was driving north along the railway line, trying to relieve 
uh, Kimberley and in a, s- a succession of a, a couple of weeks with, with those crazy battles like Mata River culminating in Marcosfontein where the British, you know, they, they, they had quite a, a significant defeat. Now, fast forward a couple of months, uh, you know, the, the, the British plan of att- attack to relieve Kimberley then changes slightly and they do this move out to the east along the Rick River and eventually the Mata River. And they punched through a set of hills where uh, where General French led a charge. And it's really only one of two or three recorded charges, a cavalry charge in the Boer War to, to push through the Boer lines and then relieve Kimberley uh, that day. The following day, the 16th of February, was a, a, a the, the British contingent that remained in that position. So French went to relieve Kimberley. And now there was a strong British uh, uh, group waiting to, to push Cronier towards Paderberg along the Modder. Mm-hmm. They had a battle in, in what's called uh, Clip Crawl Drift, but the, the hills have another name. And so what you see there are 15-pounder projectiles. Wow. Uh, so the, 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 the Armstrong uh, breech-loading 15-pounder was the most ubiquitous uh, uh, cannon in the in the British arsenal. Well, those, are, those are quite big. And those are, those are then quite large. I mean, I'm, it's hard to, to determine scale here. How big are they? I mean, what's yeah, the... they're about eighteen centimeters uh, when they haven't folded back like that. And Jeez. inside them are two hundred shrapnel balls, and that's a shrapnel uh, wow. shell. So, but what's fascinating about these is I can tell specifically that they were fired by the eighty second Royal Field Artillery Battery on the sixteenth of February 1900 because it was found in a particular position and only that uh, that, that battery of the, the, the Royal Artillery was engaged. And that's, I mean, it's just, you can get so specific with, with artillery stuff. You I, know? Just, I love this yeah. because there's like an investigative, uh, like almost like a, um, you know, these crime solving shows that you see on TV, but this, yeah. is, this is a thing that, that you can figure out the maps alone it must take a huge amount of interpretation and work and thinking and moving things around and trying to figure out what's happened what's going on here what are these i mean i'm surprised you can even tell what those are they look like just that that's the kind of stuff if you didn't have a metal detector you'd just walk right past Actually, those were all picked up without a metal detector on the surface. Now, I spoke about wow. uh, the third great Devet hunt where Plummer was a, a British general who chased Devet across the Orange River into the Northern Cape. And this is a year later. So this is in the guerrilla phase. It's 1901. The month is February. And Devet's intention is to cross the Orange River into the Northern Cape and, and try and kind of resurrect some of the Northern Cape uh, rebels and commandos. But from the start, it fails. The, all the rivers are flooded. There is a historical amount of rainfall uh, for those few weeks. And mm-hmm. as Devet gets across the Orange River in, in this remote northern part, he realizes it's now a game of survival. And for two weeks, he's chased by initially by Plummer. But at some point, no less than five uh, British regiments are chasing Devet. And long story short, he eventually manages to escape back north. But uh, for a couple of days, he, his, his Boers are putting up a rear guard, uh, and the one battle is Volvacal copies where I've you know, had the privilege of spending years. Uh, it's on our route. But two days later, De Vett is now moving towards the main railway line between uh, Daar and Kimberley, and mm-hmm. at a station called Hotkral, his intention is to blow up the railway line. Right. But it's been raining so much that this entire pan floods water into a basin, and 
the the original the the farmers nowadays call it mordeflay for muddy sort of pan. Yes. But what happens in this crazy night, uh, and there are not many accounts of this. Devet talks about it briefly in his book Three Year War. But in this crazy night, all his wagons get stuck in this mud, and eventually he says to his his two I see, listen, I need to go and blow up the railway line. If the British are on your tail, you need to blow up these wagons. And so that's what happens in that wow. dark night. They blow up all their ammunition wagons. Oh in God. fact, some of the British wagons also got stuck in the mud. And so over the 120 years, the remains of these ammunition wagons have lain across this very remote tract of land. And it just so happens that our mountain bike race goes right through this. Phenomenal. But uh, so what you're seeing there are actually Martini Henry cartridges. And the Martini Henry is quite a large caliber. It's a, it's a 450. Uh, so that's almost half an inch, like a, close to a 50 cal. Mm -hmm. And they've all exploded, you know. Uh, and they were, you know, they're lying on the surface literally um, just, and they've been lying there for 120 years. But that tells and, and such. A that, story. That's from that's from them actually blowing up the wagons. So that's not they weren't fired. Correct. Yeah. They not fired. They, the wagons were set on fire, and those cartridges are there, actually exploded. Are there any remains of those wagons that you've encountered? Uh, I mean, apart from the the metal, because obviously the metal is going to last a little bit longer than wood. But have you found any other uh, evidence of of that night? You know, I found lots of bolts and interesting these these uh, slags. So if you can imagine a whole lot of molten metal, uh, uh, and that's what happened with the the, the lead tips of these yes, bullets would melt. So I found a few pieces of slag, but in there are are still uh, the brass cartridge case <laughs> and a piece of. A, I mean, they're just such an interesting story. The farmers tell me over the years all the wagon wheels and all of that has been picked up many, many, many moons ago, you know. Mm. So now it's exceptionally difficult to – you can walk around for an hour and, and you've got to know exactly where you're walking on this – you know, where this road crosses. Mm. Uh, and you might pick up one or two blown cartridge cases. So it's – you know, over the years all of that stuff's just been picked up by the local farmers. There's such a degree of specificity about what you do here because yeah. you you really have to know your stuff. What's happening in this picture? What are all those cartridge cases? So uh, I spoke about the sort of new direction of the British attempt to relieve Kimberley. They were pushed out east, right? And those those 15-pounder projectiles you saw were on the 16th uh, of, of February. And so in the next two days – Cronier uh, ended up at Venduti's Drift on the Mata River, uh, on the, yes, on the Mata River, and famously bogged down, and that's when the, the Paderberg battle then started for the next kind of 10 days. In that period, De Vett encroached on the southern side, and he, he took over a set of copies that are, are they're known as today on the, on the government maps, they're called Oscopies. Uh, the old farm shows Stinkwart of Fontaine. In, <laughs> in the British maps, they show it as Kitchener's copies because the British had possession of those copies. Uh, De Vett chased them off, occupied the copies, and for two or three days held those copies overlooking uh, Cronier's lager. And he, he sent uh, you know, his famous spy, Donny Tehran, by himself mm. through the British lines to Cronier and gave Cronier one last way out to extricate him. And Cronier famously declined uh, the opportunity. Uh, Donny Tehran came back to De Vett and said, look, he's not going to come. And so what you, those pictures are on the sort of northern fringe of the Oscorp is looking down. 
they fired by Boers, and they're a combination of Martini Henry. There's some Mausers in there. There's even a number two, a musket number two, the shell on the left at the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, which is an old hunting rifle that some of the Boers used in the first wow. few sort of phases of the war. And the, the, the cartridge to the right is a Martini Henry, but it's a rolled or soft case Martini Henry, which is exceptionally rare to find in that condition. You can see in the box a lot mm. of the same ones are crushed because they're yeah. so soft. And that Martini Henry's that you know, the, the, in terms of rolled, is the best item I found. But that was just uh, the it's last phenomenal. opportunity for to, you know Cronier to to get out of there, and he, and he declined. Alex, uh, 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 is it rare to to find live ammo? I mean, ammo that hasn't been discharged. Obviously, you know that that stuff was like hen's teeth. And during the war, any ammo that you could use was used, so people wouldn't just drop a shell and let it lie there. Um, have you found any live ammo, and what's the procedure there? Because you have to be a little more careful, right? Yeah, so you have to look. So just interestingly, the British, so the Boers were far more circumspect with their ammunition. They had uh, far less of it, and it's you, you are less likely to find a live Mauser than you are or a Martini Henry or something that the Boers used. You know, they also used the 8 by 60 mil Guedes, a Portuguese round. Uh, the British, on the other hand, weren't nearly as circumspect, and you find plenty more. I mean, it's a relative thing. It's still rare, but you certainly find a few more. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's common knowledge that after the, the kind of – after the initial phase of the war, once Joburg and Pretoria had fallen and, and we moved into the guerrilla phase, ammunition became scarce amongst the Boers, and so part of their MO to get ammunition was to raid British convoys and to start using 303, you know, the, the, the Lee-Enfield rifle, and start mm -hmm. using British – 303. So in the, the battles in the guerrilla phase, uh, the Boer positions have a mix of, of ammunition. You'll pick up Mauser, you'll pick up 303, <laughs> you'll pick up the Guedes, the Martini Henry, and, and they're all fired by the Boers, you know. Uh, you know, you, you've got to have a, a, a license to collect ammunition. So you deal with the live ammunition. You know, it's got to be kept in a safe, obviously. And, and you, you, you deal with the Cartridge Collectors Association and they put forward a, a you know, a letter of, of good standing. Um, um, you know, the, interestingly, the, the Mark II 303 is a cordite round, and uh, what would often happen is you call them fire lighters. So the British would break off the head and they would bend the cartridge case, and they would use it as a fire light. If ever they needed to start a fire, they would just straighten it, pull out a few <laughs> strands of cordite and start a fire. Wow. So you often find these bent 303s, but if you light that cordite, I mean, it burns today instantly like it did 120 years ago. You know? Phenomenal. God, I suppose yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, one, one last picture that you have here. What is this? What's going on here? So those pictures you saw of the 15-pounder uh, projectiles, mm -hmm. that's the top of the projectile. Oh, wow. And what's screwed on the top there is a number 56 fuse, and that fuse, so before they fired that projectile, uh, one of the sort of uh, the, the artillery, the battery team, would screw on that fuse, mm -hmm. and you, you, you might be able to see there's a timer. They could set that timer. It had two rings, like a grenade. Yes. One ring, if they were going to use the timer, they would pull the ring, set the timer, and then that was designed to blow in the air and scatter those 200 shrapnel balls. <laughs> the, the second ring was a percussion. So, in other words, if they were under pressure, and there are a couple of instances, then they would pull both rings, and that meant the, the, the bomb, the projectile, would only explode on impact 
but that was highly ineffective because none of those shrapnel balls would, uh, you know, would explode. And that comes from a battlefield just around the corner, uh, Marupeng area, Dwasfle, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of conjecture as to what happened on that battle, and uh, you know, where and, and it's the battle that's closest to my home. So you know, it's, it's one that I spent a fair bit of time on. It. I'm I'm curious. Also, are there battlefields that have not yet been uncovered or discovered or or located? Are there places that you're still looking for? Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we, there, there are plenty where we know the general position was, but where I have struggled to find any evidence of, uh, and, and quite a few quite close in the northwest, you know, on the way past Michalisburg, uh, there's, there's a battlefield called Saferfontein where we host a water point on some of our training rides, and I know the farm as well. Uh, you know, I found we found the original stone that the Imperial Lighthouse put up, and, and that was a battle where Delaray uh, ambushed the, the Imperial Lighthouse in about 10 minutes, shot and killed about 80 horses. Wow. And then the British soldiers lay behind their horses uh, uh, in, a, in about an hour and a half of furious activity. They had two pom-pom guns, which are these 37 millimeter exploding shells. Two of those came into action, fired 600 rounds. Each of those projectiles explode into one or six pieces. I've never found a single piece of, the, of those thousands. So, wow. you know, we, we know the general area, but it's a mystery as to where the action happened. And there are a handful of those places where, the, you know, I haven't been able to solve the mystery. <laughs> So this, this is really, really extraordinary. Um, I love your collection. I think it's just so great that you are one of the people who's also keeping history alive by, you know, collecting these artifacts and allowing us to determine things that we might not even have known. You're adding to history. Um, but it's, it's fascinating yeah. to see also how much evidence there is out there of, you know, what happened just 120 years ago. And um, it, must be, it must be really, really exciting for you when you do discover something like this. Thanks for sharing it with us, Alex. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Someone's got to keep the history alive. Eh? I love it. Thank <laughs> you so much. Alex Harris, our guest this morning in Collectomania. And uh, it's brought to you, of course, by the South African Gold Coin Exchange and the Scoin Shop. You can check them out at scoinshop.com. And remember to message us on contact at cliffcentral.com for a chance to tell us about your collections. Cliffcentral.com.